This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. My guest today is Wade Wells. How you doing, Wade? Very well, Bob. How are you? Okay. Wade Wells is site manager at the Johnson Hall State Historic Site located in Johnstown, New York. Can you give us a brief account of the importance of Johnson Hall and its probably most famous occupants, Sir William Johnson and Native American Molly Brandt? Yes, indeed. Uh, Johnson Hall is was built in 1763, um, a, a Georgian style uh, mansion. This was the the third and final home of Sir William. It kind of represents the culmination of his estate building. Uh, here in the Mohawk Valley, uh, but really, a, you know, a, a jewel, you know, a, a very nice, uh, elegant estate, literally on the frontier. But more, I think, more importantly, um, it's a representation uh, on an imperial level. It was the headquarters of the Crown's Northern Department of Indian Affairs, uh, and it was the second council fire of the Six Nations. Uh, this was used as uh, a meeting place very often for large and small councils. Some of the more important ones, the 1768 conference, uh, which uh, brought about a peace between the Six Nations and the Cherokee. Mm-hmm. And then again in 1774, another uh, major conference with the Six Nations um, about land disputes um, and, and and difficulties on the frontier. And at that council, uh, Sir William actually died. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I've always been, uh, you know, it's an impressive building today. I mean, uh, and it must have been quite impressive then, being as it was on the frontier. But going there, I wonder how everybody fit into the building who came to see him, because uh, you hear about great uh, throngs of uh, people, you know, Native Americans and others uh, th- that came. They didn't. This wasn't the only building, though, on on his property. He had other buildings, right? Yes, there were many more buildings <clears throat> along the stream. Uh, were shops for the blacksmith, cobbler, cooper, seamstress, tailor, the wash and bake houses. But there were also stables. Um, in one reference to a longhouse. Uh, a type structure, which was very likely uh, meant for housing the natives when they were here uh, for councils. And, of course, they were camped everywhere on the grounds. There were occasions when he was ordering in sailcloth for them to make, uh, excuse me, <clears throat> for them to make uh, small shelters with. Some of it was more long-term uh, structures. So they were anywhere from, you know, maybe 50 to 100 people here sometimes to upwards of six to 900 for large councils. Wow. But in the house itself, and correct me if I'm wrong, my recollection is that William and Molly were in uh, on the first floor. I mean, their bedroom was in the, uh, in the rear of the first floor of the building with the door that went to make maybe more of a main uh, meeting room. So he was, he was right there when he had uh, uh, folks in the, in the house. Yes, that's true. Um, Sir William had been shot at the Battle of Lake George in 1755, uh, and the ball was never removed 
uh, from his his hip area, and it made cl- climbing the stairs and moving about the house difficult. And it wasn't uncommon in the 18th century for gentlemen um, who had been injured to move their bedchambers from the ground floor to their study on on the main floor. But when Johnson Hall was designed, the bedroom was designed to be on the ground floor automatically. And that's true. There is a doorway between his bedchamber and the white parlor, so it was an easy, you know, pass through uh, to the white parlor to visit with family or friends, take meals. Um, but there, yes, their bedchambers were on the ground floor, as uh, was the children's room as well. Hmm. We're talking with Wade Wells, who's site manager of the Johnson Hall State Historic Site in Johnstown, New York. You recently did a program at Johnson Hall called Hunting and Harvesting. I'd like to uh, walk th- through that with you. Uh, and the theme was preparing for winter in the uh, 18th century. You had a historian named Paul Supley who did a talk on the staple Mohawk Valley crops and harvesting methods in the 18th century. What were were the crops and how were they harvested? Well, wheat was the primary crop, wheat and rye. Um, the, they referred to the Mohawk and Schoharie Valleys as the breadbasket of the American Revolution. Uh, on some occasions because of the production of wheat here in the valley. It was also a primary crop of Sir Williams. He was planting wheat, peas, and corn. And those were basically the staples. Wheat, peas, corn, rye um, were the staple crops. Hmm. And they didn't have the McCormick Reaper. How did they uh, cut these down? No, they were using using size or they were using small... uh, uh, small hook shaped they they look somewhat like a bill hook um but a little bit larger they were and it was just a small uh cutting tool to cut by hand so you literally were passing through the field bent over gathering the stalks and then cutting with one hand it, it had to have been backbreaking work oh dear and you also have uh, in fact you have several programs this year i believe with a culinary historian, Sarah Evanson of uh, Dunk Hill Dry Goods. What is Dunk, Dunk Hill Dry Goods? Dunk Hill Dry Goods is a new business that Sarah has launched recently, and it's named for the area where she lives outside of Oneonta. There's a small little, uh, a small little area called Dunk Hill, and she is is starting a company where she's going to be producing uh, chocolates, jellies. Um, in all manner of, of treats. She has um, a degree. Uh, she graduated from Virginia Tech, and she has a degree in, in food history. Huh. And so she's launched that small company. It's been um, a great uh, collaborative effort with us in, in doing open-hearth cooking uh, workshops here at Johnson Hall. And at the program on Getting Ready for Winter, she talked about harvesting meats and vegetables for storage and use over the winter in the 18th century. How did they uh, preserve uh, food for the winter? Well, there were, in some cases, uh, they were pickling uh, foods, brining them, uh, salting and drying them, and she had a a display of fruit that she was drying um, on a string over the fireplace. Um, there was also, they also smoked, uh, their meats, but they also, they salted as well. And she had a display of, uh, pork 
that she had placed in a, a, a pile of salt and demonstrated how it would be turned so, uh, after so many days, and then um, the salt changed. And so that would take that was quite a process of of several months of of just turning the meat and just having it packed in that salt uh, to salt it properly. And then she also was demonstrating uh, how you would have to soak the meat um, to get or draw all of the salt out of it before you could use it again. And people were quite surprised that, you know, in order to use that meat, you literally would have to soak it and change the water for about 24 hours before mm-hmm. it was usable. Wow. Now, your part in the program on getting ready for winter dealt with hunting. Do you hunt? I did when I was younger a little bit, um, but uh, I, I, I don't. Um, I, I haven't as an adult. Um, we were talking about the difference between uh, sport hunting and subsistence hunting um, in the 18th century, and sometimes those things crossed the line. I mean, certainly gentlemen uh, hunted for sport. A lot of what they were producing on their, their farms or estates um, were domestic animals, and even here at Johnson Hall, the majority of what they were consuming at Johnson Hall was domestically raised um, um, animals. But a lot of farmers in the valley uh, would have to hunt for subsistence, um, particularly deer, um, but they also hunted bear and, and, and such. So those meats were, were, were necessary to them to, ca- you know, to carry them through, uh, through, through the winter. But for Sir William... It was primarily beef, you know, pork, uh, fresh or, or salted, and uh, uh, domestically raised birds as well. Uh, a number of years ago, the archaeologists excavated a garbage pit on the north side of the house, and they sent the bones to Ottawa to have them analyzed to see uh, what types of animals that they, they, they came from, and it was primarily uh, domestically raised animals. Mm. So that... that, that kind of legend that he was eating wild game continuously really wasn't the case. Uh, but some people were. Oh, yes. Uh, yeah. quite, quite a lot of people were. I mean, they're, you know, what, what they could, you know, you couldn't raise beef or the, the average farmer couldn't afford to raise beef regularly um, that those animals were, were needed for milk and, and such. So um, while they did have some you know, they were primarily, for the most part, living off the land, particularly earlier in the century. Now, I know that um, Sir William had a fish house, which was where he fished on the was it the Sacandaga River or maybe elsewhere. Did he also have a hunting house or something like that? Hunting lodge. They were they were actually one and the same. People refer to to the the that structure as the fish house. Um, its its actual name was Mount Joy, um, but. Quite typically, people just referred to it as the fish house. And that was on the second dog of Lye. Um, and that was where Sir William and his friends would go, not often enough, um, I'm sorry to say, to hunt or fish. And we have the inventory of that building, and there's a, a box of tackling, as they called it, uh, which was fishing tackle, some rods. There were uh, some, also some fowling pieces, which were uh, large, long-barreled muskets that were used for bird shooting. Uh, so he would go out there occasionally, um, and one, 
one of his friends it admonished him once to go to Fish House more often, that he really needed to get away and relax and to um, basically extract himself from his dirty acres and go to Mount Joy and, and enjoy life a little bit. And I was, I was ad-libbing a bit with the, the terms that he used. Right. Um, you also, in their talk about the hunting, and, and you've done some already, you talked about the equipment of of hunting back then, uh, like like powder horns. Like, what was a powder horn? Well, the powder horns were um, horn from from cows, uh, primarily. In, in some cases in the West, they were buffalo horn uh, that were used to hold the powder. And some of them were very elegantly uh, tooled on the exterior with seams um, or various designs. Uh, and that would hold your, your powder. You measured your powder out for each individual round. Uh, I had shot pouches for carrying uh, swan shot, which was a typical to a type of bird shot, and also solid shot uh, for, the, uh, for the, the firearms. And we also had a display of several, several pieces of firearms, um, a rifle, which was a rifled gun. It has the grooves inside the barrel to actually... Uh, help to direct the ball that's different than than modern guns which have a swirl inside of rifling these are just straight drawn lines of uh, rifling inside the barrel and then also um uh fouling pieces uh there were two of those two different types of those one which is here in our collection a hudson valley fowler um which was very nicely made um uh here in in north america the barrel and lock were made in london and sent to North America, where the stock was made of native wood here, and then put together by a gunsmith. So we had uh, we had a display of, of both types of weapons. Hmm. Now, when they hunted for animals, sometimes they uh, used the fur, right? Like, I imagine a bear, or um, I don't know if they hunted beaver, or maybe they trapped beaver. beaver. Yeah, they, they trapped beaver primarily. There, there were... Um, I did have a, a display of some furs, uh, beaver, bear, and uh, some uh, deer hides. And those were, you know, almost everybody was involved in the fur trade. So that was a nice byproduct. If they didn't use it for some reason themselves, then, of course, that would be traded because it would have, uh, it would have some value uh, to them for, uh, you know, objects that they, that they would need, you know, sugar, you know, flour, whatever they, they would need that they would, would not need to use cash for, they could trade uh, their fur. So very often, you know, it, that was a byproduct of, of hunting for subsistence. In fact, weren't the deer hides kind of the original basis for glove making in uh, Gloversville, Johnstown, Fulton County? Indeed, deer, deer hides, and, and they were also exported uh, in the 18th century, they were just they were sending shiploads of hides uh, to to England, and the deer hides were made into uh, riding breeches, uh, slippers, gloves, um, all manner of objects. We're talking with Wade Wells, who is site manager of Johnson Hall State Historic Site in uh, Johnstown, New York. The New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation, which operates that historic site, uh, I believe is 
considering a master plan uh, for Johnson Hall. And, and there's been some um, local input. I was reading a newspaper uh, story that the Fulton County administrator, uh, John Stead, uh, said he'd like to see major state investment in Johnson Hall, saying he believes it could rival George Washington's home Mount Vernon in attendance. Uh, how, how is this uh, master plan coming along? Well, we're still we're still early in the process, and we're you know we're weighing our options of what the you know what we we would might like to do. And certainly at the public information meeting, uh, we were uh, certainly listening very clearly to what the public uh, had to say about what they would like to see at Johnson Hall. So right now we're we're looking at um, those suggestions. We're looking at the site itself and what may be possible here, how to improve the visitor experience, uh, expand on African-American and Native American interpretation here, um, which we do some of that interpretation now, but we'd like to expand on that more. And as you know, uh, in, in 2016, we finished a restoration on the slaves' quarters, which is in the stone house adjacent to the mansion, and we've been able to expand uh, somewhat on that programming. So those are the things we're looking at. We haven't really come to any conclusions yet because, as I said, it's early in the process at Mm. this point. And you mentioned the slave quarters. There's been more attention that uh, slavery existed in the North uh, in in pre-revolutionary days even, especially with... Uh, I, w- I would say maybe this wasn't the case, but I would imagine, especially in terms of wealthy uh, citizens like uh, William Johnson or the uh, Dutch patroons of uh, the Hudson Valley owned slaves for their um, for their farming enterprises. Yes, slavery was quite common in the North, and you know because of the Civil War, we tend to look at slavery um, in the Mid Atlantic and South uh, more heavily. But slavery did exist here in the North, and you know, for it wasn't just you know uh, people like the Schuylers and the Van Rensselaers and you know the Patroons and 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 Sir William owning slaves. There were even you know farmers in the Mohawk Valley had uh, held slaves as well. You know, perhaps no more than one or two. But we kind of have to look back at what were they producing that they would need uh, require require slaves, and it was wheat. Um, and I, wheat was, uh, was very valuable and, um, they were using slaves to help, uh, to plant and harvest that. And indeed, I think, um, and don't hold me perfectly to this, but I think at at a, a lecture I attended, someone had estimated that eight acres of wheat, uh, would purchase a slave Mm. or human being to, Mm. to, to work on their farm. So, you can see how that would grow exponentially, you know, mm-hmm. as you were, um, you were able to make profit, um, you could increase um, your support of that, of that farm by purchasing additional slaves. So even, uh, even in, the, in the Mohawk Valley, there were, there were farmers who, in some cases, had one or two, one or two slaves. Now, Johnson Hall's in, in Johnstown. Basically, you have programs coming up, and I'm going to ask you about them, but uh, it, it's basically on a, on a regular basis uh, closed for the season by now, correct? We did close on Columbus Day weekend. Uh, that's our, our last uh, uh, 
last weekend of our operating season. But we are open by appointment. So if someone would like to see the house, uh, if they can call and make an appointment, we're happy to uh, we're happy to open up for them. And we do have a number of programs coming up this fall. On November third, we have an open hearth uh, uh, baking and cooking workshop. Sarah Evanson from Dunkill Dry Goods will be here to uh, host a class on uh, holiday treats. Mm -hmm. And we also have an ornament workshop on November 10th with Beverly Cornelius. And people will be, uh, participants will be working on uh, wheat ornaments. I believe they'll be making four of them that day. And on the 20th, which is a Tuesday of November, uh, Sarah Evanson will be back with us again to do a pie baking workshop, and participants will be able to come and open hearth bake with Dutch ovens uh, their own apple or pumpkin pie that they can take home for Thanksgiving. Mm. Are you doing a holiday open house this year, or is that... We are. On November 30th, um, in conjunction with the Johnstown Colonial Stroll, uh, it's Friday evening, the 30th, from 5 until 8.30. Uh, we'll have an open house, and we'll have horse-drawn wagon rides here uh, for the children. There will be making uh, homemade mulled cider, and we'll have holiday treats. And we do that open the, over the fire out in the, the slaves' quarters in the stone house. And the house will be decorated and candlelit, and we'll have uh, reenactors um, uh hosting and, and displaying small vignettes in, in all of the rooms and doing some interpretation for the visitors. Now, at Christmas time, I mean, the, the Johnsons wouldn't have had a Christmas tree, would they? No. no. Christmas trees didn't come, uh, didn't come along until the 19th century after Prince Albert of, um, uh, married Queen Victoria, and he brought that tradition uh, to England from Germany. And that gained in popularity then here in North America. But they wouldn't have done that here. Decorations tended to be fairly simple. Uh, you know, the Yule log, maybe some mistletoe and a little bit of, of greens in the house, a little bit of roping and such. But that was really it. Um, they didn't, there wasn't a great deal of um, celebrating in the way we do it today. Mm -hmm. um, Certainly dinners um, and, and some drinking and attending church, uh, but it wasn't really the large Christmas tree and gift-giving holiday that we have today. No. Um, and Wade Wells is with us, site manager of uh, Johnson Hall. I did attend, a, um, and I believe you did a program about this this year, but I remember seeing you in other years uh, doing a program on the death of uh, Sir William Johnson, which uh, took place in 1770 for just before the American Revolution, so he he didn't have to go through that, if you will. His son did, and his um, well, anyway, his son was had to leave that house. Then he would came back to the area with uh, soldiers and Molly Brandt's half brother, and they uh, did a lot of uh, damage. But what you gave the program on was funeral customs. I found that was uh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, so in, uh, in July we held. Uh a program on death and mourning, and we had three speakers uh, here. Uh, Paul Supley uh, was with us to talk about 18th century medicine and surgery, and Ann Clothier 
uh, was also here talking about 18th century uh, medicine in midwifery, and I was speaking about um, death and, and funerary customs. Uh, and we, we talked a bit. My particular lecture uh, was about uh, burial practices, um, embalming, or very early embalming or not, uh, preparation of the body, and an actual burial and mourning attire as well, which um, was gaining in popularity in, in the 18th century. Mm. Sir William Johnson is buried in Johnstown, correct? He is. He's, he's buried um, in the park next to St. John's Episcopal Church, and where he is located, uh, where he was reinterred in that area, was where the original altar was of the church. Um, and that burned in the 19th century, and when the church was rebuilt, um, they changed the footprint um, where it is. So Sir William is now outside the walls of the church, but originally he was buried under the altar. Now, with the way the revolution went with uh, Sir William's son, John, and, and others who were loyalists and had gone to Canada coming back and attacking the Mohawk Valley, was there ever any thought of, you know, I don't know, doing something to his grave, to William Johnson's grave, you know, getting rid of it, I guess I mean. No, I don't think, I, I, Sir William has always, uh, there's always been a very good opinion of him. And, and, and part, of the, part of the reason was that, that, you know, he died before the war. You know, I think that's, I think that's, that's why he died before the war. Um, people had a good opinion of him. They continued to. Even one of the rebel soldiers, uh, Joseph Bloomfield, who seized this house uh, from Lady Johnson, Sir John had already fled to Canada, had seized the house from Lady Johnson. He wrote in his journal in a complimentary, uh, you know, complimentary sentence about the old baronet, uh, but not his son, of course, because Sir John had remained loyal to the crown. And so we think that's one of the reasons, uh, you know, that people had a generally a good, rela- a good opinion of him, and that was maintained by people. But I think it was because he did not, he, he didn't play an active role in the war, obviously, because he, he wasn't here. So the, as with other homes of the Johnson family, the, um, the rebels took control of the house. And then didn't it, I mean, didn't it become you know, different private residences and so forth through the years? It did. It was it was guarded and, and locked up and guarded during the war, and then it was sold at the sequestration sales, the confiscation sales. And there were a succession of owners uh, between 1785 and 18, uh, well, 1806, the the Aiken family purchased it. They intermarried with the Wells family, and that changed hands. And the uh, Sabre Wells sold it to the state of New York in uh, 1906. Did you say the Aiken family? Yes. Oh, and the same family that they owned old Fort Johnson too, didn't they? Or is yes. That, yeah. Yes, it was the same family. Wow. So that was sold. So it was sold to the state. You said in 1906. That's correct. And it's been a state historic site ever since? Yes. There, it was owned by the state of New York very early, uh, in 19, uh, after it was purchased in 1906. Uh, the Johnstown Historical Society became trustees. And so there were the Historical Society 
uh, displayed all of their exhibits in Johnson Hall. And that continued until the 1950s, and the Historical Society moved out when the Department of Education uh, uh, put Johnson Hall through a, a total restoration inside and out. And the Department of Education managed Johnson Hall until I think it was 1973 when the Office of Parks, Recreation, and Historic Preservation was formed. And at that point, the new, uh, the new office took over management of all of the historic sites. Now, you mentioned the different uh, festivities or programs you have coming up uh, for the holiday season, really. But when do you reopen next year? We will open mid-May next year. And I'm sorry, I don't have my calendar in front of That's me right. at, at the moment. But we, we usually open, it'll be on a Wednesday, and it's usually the, the second week of May. Our guest on the Historian's Podcast has been Wade Wells, the site manager of the Johnson Hall State Historic Site in Johnstown, New York. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.